brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go again, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And it's no secret to anyone here that the big machine makes sure life is a difficult swim upstream for anyone not in the big club. But your race, gender, sexuality, politics, or profession can determine the strength of the current you're fighting against. It's not fair, it's not right, but it's also definitely not a competition that should cause us to fight over who has it worse. Instead, we should stand united against the machinations of the big machine and work to make the struggle easier for us all. Because anyone can easily find themselves in the crosshairs of a three-letter agency, corrupt law enforcement, or a shady politician, if they see, hear, or speak out against the wrong thing, and that's no way to live. But we work our jobs, scroll our phones, and watch our shows like we don't know exactly what's going on under our nose, and we quietly hope to stay just under the radar of anything that might want to single us out from the herd. Well, this is a reality that today's guest, Dr. Stuart Jean Bramhall, an American psychiatrist, knows all too well as her activism and assistance to the underprivileged in Seattle led to enough systematic harassment and intimidation over 15 years that she had little choice but to leave the country and start over as an expatriate in New Zealand in 2002. You can read about her story in her book, The Most Revolutionary Act, Memoir of an American Refugee, but she also authored a few award-winning young adult novels and a guidebook for making the change she would love to see in the world entitled 21st Century Revolution, which you can get for free on her website, stuartbramhall.wordpress.com, where she also writes and shares a lot of great content to help the rest of us read between the lines of the official story. So let's get into it. The expat activist, do-gooder doctor, and a true advocate for the underprivileged, Stuart Jean Bramhall, welcome to The Higher Side. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. Of course. Thanks for being here. This is a real pleasure. I actually learned about you while I was digging around to see if there was anything fishy about the backstory in the George Floyd situation, because it's hard to trust these things that come from the mainstream media and then balloon to the levels that this did. That is something you've covered. And then I read your memoir and got more familiar with your overall story. And it's definitely a wild ride. And it's a good case study in how the system 
attacks people who try to make a difference. So let's tell the listeners a bit about that. You were working as a psychiatrist in Seattle. Where do you start this story? Where did the activism start? Well, this was a long time ago. It started in 1986 when I made a decision to support two African-American activists who had occupied an abandoned school that the city had promised them for an African-American museum. And there was a lot of conflict over an interstate branch that had basically destroyed the African-American economy. They do this in a lot of cities that they come in, they bulldoze a lot of homes. They actually destroy African-American businesses. And these two activists had gotten involved in that controversy. And because of that, the mayor basically punished them by reneging on this promise to give them this abandoned school for their museum. So I was really, really concerned about this because the primary motivation for starting the museum was basically to address the crack cocaine epidemic that was happening around that time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people are aware of the history of Freeway Pete. He was a guy who worked very closely with some of the CIA Contras and bringing cocaine in. It was basically from Colombia, but it transited through Nicaragua. And what would happen is the planes would fly to Nicaragua with guns. They'd come back with cocaine. They developed this method of making it really, really cheap because normally cocaine was a white upper middle class drug, but they developed a cheaper form that you could smoke Mm -hmm. and it cost like a dollar a cigarette. So anyway, they started in Los Angeles and then Freeway Rick then introduced this crack cocaine to various, mostly the Bloods and the Crips, which were various gangs. There was some in Portland, some in Seattle. And it was incredibly devastating to the African-American community. And the primary reason for choosing this location was for their museum is to basically get rid of the, they were called night riders. They would be drug dealers who would go to abandoned neighborhoods to sell crack cocaine at night. And so their goal was to create unemployment because the the city had cheated them as far as awarding contracts to black contractors when they destroyed all the black businesses with the freeways they had promised them that they would you know they would be awarded a number of contracts after this freeway strip was completed and that didn't happen so there was a desperate need to replace this black employment that had been destroyed and they were also um, really keen on getting rid of these drug dealers that were creating an epidemic of cocaine addiction in the black community. So when the mayor double-crossed them, they decided to occupy the museum. They called it the museum. It was the abandoned school. They converted it to the African-American Heritage Museum, and they gave art lessons to children. So I felt this was something that I could support, and I became a member of their support committee. Hmm. And then a few months after I did that, I started getting a whole lot of weird phone calls. (laughs) 
Right, right. It is pretty wild, the amount of harassment that you seem to get. And you also say in your memoir that as Freud did, you filled empty slots in your schedule as a psychiatrist with low-income families and patients that were around. And through that practice, you actually learned quite a bit about what the minority communities were dealing with locally, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What were some of those insights you might have gotten? Well, I dealt with mothers who were terrified of their kids getting caught up in gangs and selling drugs. I dealt with African-American veterans who had been, they weren't exactly court-martialed, but they were selected out for special treatment, which was basically incarceration during the Vietnam War because they opposed the war. And so they got like dishonorable discharges and they were not eligible for any kind of treatment through the VA and they had post-traumatic stress disorder. I also started dealing with a lot of people who were low-level informants. You know, it was never clear whether they worked for the police or whether they worked for a three-letter agency, as you call them. But a lot of them, they were on disability and they just got paid, you know, a small additional amount every month, you know, for providing information. I worked with one client who lived in a Seattle housing authority, and there was a drug ring there that she believed was connected with the CIA, and they also had a kind of a burglary ring whereby they would, when people died, they would break into their apartments and steal their things hmm. and resell them. So I just... I was exposed to a level of corruption that I just had no idea existed before I started seeing these low-income patients. And something you say in your memoir that I think is just really important that people don't hear enough, but you say that you realized that you couldn't help a lot of these people medically through your practice because their problems were situational and economic. And I think so often people are like, why am I depressed? Is it a chemical imbalance? No, it's because you hate your job. You know, you're always worried about your income. That's why you're depressed. And a pill isn't always going to help that or really ever going to help that. No. You know, because I accepted Medicaid and Medicare, you know, a lot of my practice was just limited to prescribing medication for people. But I was really never able to help more than 50% of the people I treated hmm. for depression. Yeah, it was really discouraging. It's really discouraging that psychotherapy just really is not funded. The insurance companies don't fund it anymore either. Hmm. And so you were mentioning the harassment. Let's get into that a little bit. You got some prank phone calls, but how bad did this get? How long did it last? Well, the prank calls lasted until I left the country, basically. I got the last one in 2002. It didn't occur to me that they were prank phone calls. They would be wrong numbers. But what happened is some of the low-income people I saw were experiencing harassment similar to me. Like I had one woman who was being harassed because she had gotten into a lesbian affair with the wife of an FBI agent. And I think a lot of the harassment that occurs 
is not really political. It's sometimes it's just spiteful. You know, they do it out of for personal reasons. Right. But yeah, she mentioned getting the same kind of calls, you know, that I was getting, you know, and, and until I had that conversation with her, I had no idea that it was harassment. It was just these constant wrong numbers and asking for really strange people and making reference to discussions I'd had with patients in the office, mm -hmm. which was concerning. <laughs> of course. And I've heard you talk about this a little bit in the past and give some examples of injustices that you saw. And you've talked about a black banker who had been set up by a long-term friend who ended up being a federal agent. But it's kind of archetypical that throughout the history of this country, when black people get involved in banking or giving out loans and try to help their own community, the wagons tend to circle because cities don't like that, sad as it is. They try to keep black people from getting an economic foothold in the center of the city. And that kind of comes into play with the museum that they were trying to set up and all this kind of stuff. And it is old history, but it's not unusual history for this country, is it? Well, I at the time, I didn't know it was usual. I mean, <laughs> I really learned a lot. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was experiencing the only people I ran across who experienced similar phone harassment were African-Americans. And so they gave me a lot of support during this time. And I also met a gay activist from ACT UP who was experiencing the same kind of harassment. But my friends in the white community, they just thought I was paranoid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they didn't believe that these kind of things happen. But my experience has been since the Patriot Act was passed after 9-11, all the stuff they did to me, that's legal now. <laughs> right, right. It's a lot more <laughs> widespread. Well, and they can break in without you knowing about it. I started, you know, experiencing people breaking in and taking stuff, uh, never anything really valuable, but stealing newspaper articles. And I had a medical file on someone who was a, he was a former member of Hitler Youth that had applied for Social Security benefits, and he claimed to be a U.S. citizen. And I was aware that the CIA had brought a lot of Nazi war criminals into the United States to work in the CIA and various places in the federal government. So that was stolen. I had people stalking me, following me. I had people posing as patients that weren't really patients. Right. And what would you say would be the, the peak of the harassment? What were some of the worst or strangest things you experienced in this string of events? Well, I did have several attempts made on my life. I had a car try to run me over, you know, go through a red light and try to run me over. Hmm. There were several accidents. You know, one of the clients I saw had told me about how they set you up for accidents. And, you know, how to vary the route I used and not use the same route every day. Mm -hmm. I had someone break into my basement and there was let off some kind of uh, chemical bomb. It smelled like some kind of pesticide. And that was really frightening. Mm. Wow. It seems very difficult to navigate all that, but I'm glad you're safe now. And 
The part of your story that I found to be the scariest is the chain of events that happened after you started to tell your own colleagues and your own psychiatrist about the harassment. Tell us what happened there. Well, they told me I had agreed to go to a psychiatric hospital or they were going to report me and have my medical license canceled. I've heard you talk about this and mention that once you said there was a three-letter agency after you, that's like kind of a big red flag because it's something that maybe a lot of paranoid schizophrenic people say, but yet it also does happen sometimes. So it's a very difficult thing to determine one from the other. Well, it was, you know, and then psychiatrists would say things to me like, well, I participated in protests when I was in college and I never had any harassment. And then immediately prior to my hospitalization, we were engaged in a protest up at the University of Washington, where the Black Student Union was protesting the firing of a very popular professor there. And so we organized a sit-in, and the police basically grabbed one of the leaders of the protest and started manhandling him and trying to arrest him. And I kind of stood in the way between the police and the squad car, so they weren't able to drag him out of the protest. and. Basically, I was told that I was psychotic, that that was why I participated in that protest. Mm. And you kind of agreed to this hospitalization because you thought it was, I guess, a formality of sorts. So you thought once you got in, they would clearly see that you were fine. You have a license. You have a, you know, you're a doctor of psychiatry, but that wasn't really the experience, was it? Well, yeah, they immediately put me on really heavy doses of antipsychotic medication. They told me I had bipolar disorder, and I just didn't know that I had bipolar disorder and that I'd had it my whole life. Yeah. Yes, I did write that down. I copied this from your book where it says even though you were a licensed doctor, you had no say in your own treatment, and you were told, quote, we're treating you for manic depressive illness. It seems like you've been manic depressive your entire life and we're simply unaware of it. And that sort of thing is so scary. The arrogance of certain doctors and just the whole idea of taking your autonomy away, diagnosing you with the magic phrase, and then being able to pump you full of drugs that numb you, that hurt your ability to even like rationalize your situation or get yourself out? Well, I, you know, actually, I know quite a bit about medication. So basically, they sent me for an EEG. You know, that's the electroencephalogram, you know, to see whether I had a neurologic problem. And the neurologist told me I was having major side effects with my medication and I needed to change them. And so I got them to change me to just more sedating medication that doesn't doesn't cause the horrible muscle problem. You know, there's something called an akathisia where you just feel this unbearable restlessness inside. I asked the doctor to change me to more sedating medication. So I just slept most of the time, you know, and I was sleeping like 23 hours a day. And finally, I told him I didn't see how I could function on the outside if I slept 23 hours a day. And he 
finally, you know, lowered my medication just because I was refusing a lot of doses of the medication. Mm. But basically, I kind of figured out how to manipulate the situation just by, you know, not talking about the reasons I was in the hospital and not doing anything that they would construe as being paranoid. Hmm. And, you know, forming relationships with the nurses and forming relationships with the other patients. So I think it was finally the nurses that realized that there was really nothing wrong with them and they pressured the doctors to release me. And how long did that hospitalization last? It was a little over three weeks. And then after I got out of the hospital, I had an answering service when I was in the hospital, and I just got a lot of really unusual messages on my answering services. And I, you know, it was my intention to start seeing patients almost immediately when I, when I was released, because I was mostly seeing low-income patients, and I really couldn't afford to be off work that long. So I was sitting there in the hospital making new appointments and scheduling new patients. And I got this call for a job interview I'd had with a clinic. This African-American social worker rang me. And we had had some discussion at the time of the interview about all the sexual abuse that occurs in children's homes. Mm. You know, I didn't really know that much about the problem at the time, except for what patients would tell me, women who had their kids taken into foster care and they would disappear. And he had recommended that I see a psychiatrist, a former VA psychiatrist who specialized in working with people who were being harassed by three-letter agencies. So when I got out of the hospital, I threw all my medication down the toilet and I made an appointment to go see this psychologist. And he knew exactly what I was referring to as far as the problems that I was having. And there was an agreement. He told my psychiatrist that I could start seeing patients immediately provided I didn't do psychotherapy, that I just prescribed medication for them. So I had a three-month limit on my practice that I only see patients for medication. I started having some depression after I got out of the hospital. So I went back on an antidepressant that I had been taking, which I think probably really aggravated my mental state because I had another psychiatrist tell me that sometimes the antidepressant can cause some mania in people and not sleeping. But anyway, I went back on that and then in December, my insurance ran out, so I couldn't afford to see the psychiatrist or the psychologist anymore. I mean, I used up my deductible. So basically, the psychologist wrote me a letter in January basically saying that I did much better off medication, you know, and I should be released from treatment. And the psychiatrist released me from treatment, so I didn't have to be monitored anymore as to what I thought or what I did politically. Hmm. Well... I also had a question for you just about the psychiatric hospitals in general. There are a lot of stories that they were cesspools for neglect and mistreatment. And that's obviously true. I've heard a lot of dark stories from those places. But when they closed them, they left really 
nowhere for these people to go. And you could say it's obviously why we have such a bad homelessness problem in this country today. But what are your thoughts on that, on the closure of the hospitals and really what should have been done maybe systemically to replace the hospitals or just to make them better? Well, it was basically John F. Kennedy who launched the community mental health movement in the 60s. And he basically, because there were new antipsychotic medications, you know, that worked very well for some people, you know, he was very much in favor of closing the mental hospitals and replacing it with community mental health. And he felt it was really important to have community, to have federal funding for that. Mm-hmm. Because he was afraid if it was left for the states, you know, that it could become a, a political issue. And that would be the first thing that would be sacrificed, you know, if a state was dealing with a tight budget. But basically, after Kennedy was assassinated, the federal funding for community mental health stopped. So it's been a program that has mostly been funded by Medicaid. So in other words, Medicaid will give a community mental health center a grant to see a certain number of patients. And as long as they keep up their numbers, they can continue that grant. And the Medicaid is a combination of a federal and a state program. But beginning with Reagan, the, the federal government has, you know, made more and more cuts to what they provide the states for Medicaid. And it is not the kind of, you know, especially after, you know, several severe recessions that we've had. We had the dot-com recession and then we had the 2008 recession. States simply do not have the funding to keep Medicaid going, and that's been the only thing that's supported community health basically since since the late 1970s. Right. And to come back to your story and fast forward a little bit, you left the country in 2002. I think a lot of people have expatriating on the back of their mind, but were held back by a fear of the unknown. What would you say that experience was like, and why did you choose New Zealand? Well, I chose New Zealand because it was the easiest place for me to get credentialed, because I'm board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. And so New Zealand, because they have a shortage of specialist health professionals, they allowed me to get the equivalent of board certification here just by practicing in a community mental health setting for one year under under supervision and then doing like a detailed application with the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. So I, I knew that would be a really easy path, whereas to go anywhere else, they either make you repeat your training or in UK they make you pay like 500 pounds to have your credentials evaluated. So yeah, I just saw that it would be really easy to continue to support myself here. So that's why I came here. The path of least resistance. And that's was right. It, was it scary leaving the American bubble at first? No, it was wonderful. Because <laughs> <laughs> I you know, I really learned a lot more about the United States after moving here 
it didn't occur to me before I came here that I lived in a military empire. Mm. I don't know why. It's just that that was not the politics I was interested in. Sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees, I guess. But um, there's something really wonderful about living in a country where there's no no New Zealand exceptionalism. I didn't really understand Americans' exceptionalism in New Zealand. You know, we have lots of money to spend on social services. You have an, a national health service. We have, you know, fairly generous welfare benefits for low-income people. Simply because we aren't forced to spend all of our taxes on on supporting a military. Hmm. You know, it had never occurred to me that all these this thousand plus military bases that the United States has around the world, it had never occurred to me that they're actually militarily occupying those countries. That never occurred to me when I lived in the United States. <laughs> And there's no pressure here to be the best, you know, the best at science, the best at this. It's just a very relaxed and laid back place compared to what I'm used to in the United States. And you also wrote a little bit about its electoral system based on proportional representation, which is, I think, something we could use because a big part of our issue is the two party system or, you know, the two wings of the one bird system. But what can you tell us about that proportional representation and just the way the New Zealand government function that you think that Americans uh, might be interested in hearing? Well, we have what's called a mixed member proportional system. So when you go to the polls, we don't use computers to vote here. It's all paper ballots, so it can't be hacked. And the people from the parties come in and they scrutinize the voting process. They scrutinize the vote counting process at all levels, you know, so that we don't have any of the election fraud that they're having in the United States. So you get two votes on your ballot. You get to vote for the person you want to represent your district, and you get a vote for the party you want to represent you. So up until recently, I was really active in the in the Green Party, which at one point had 14 MPs in the parliament, which really, you know, gave them a fairly strong voice in what happened in terms of legislation, because neither of the two major parties, we have like a conservative party and a, what's called the Labor Party, neither of them actually ever gets a majority of votes. They always get a minority, so they have to make some kind of agreement with the minor parties in order to pass legislation. Mm. That seems like a great safeguard against total capture and corruption and uh, appealing to the interests of rogue groups, you know, fringe groups that might have specific needs or desires that just aren't expressed in the major parties. Well, that's true. I don't, I don't think that we're rogue groups. You know, there are political problems in New Zealand. Basically, it was captured by this whole neoliberal economic model, you know, that came about under Reagan and Thatcher. And they actually, they used, it was enacted here in New Zealand first. It was called Rogernomics, and it was used as kind of a laboratory, you know, to see how 
neoliberal reforms would work. So at the moment, we deal with the situation in which neither of the major political parties represents the working class, which creates a really difficult situation. And it means we often have elections in which a fairly large percent of the people don't vote here. It's only about 30, 35% don't vote. It's nowhere near as large as what happens in the United States. Mm. And another thing I thought was interesting that you wrote about in your memoir that you learned when you moved to New Zealand is you learned a little bit about the country's difficult relationship with the International Monetary Fund. And obviously that is a thing that we hear about a lot with other countries having to deal with. What did you learn about the International Monetary Fund? Well, I don't think we've actually borrowed money from the International Monetary Fund, but we do get warnings if a government gets in power that spends too much money on social programs, then the International Monetary Fund will issue a negative bulletin about us paying too much for social programs. Hmm. They enact a lot of control over the countries that do take their loans, don't they? They do. Right now, what I'm most invested in is reforming the way money is created. We have a really strong movement in New Zealand mm. uh, to end the ability of private banks to create money. Right now, that's where between 97 and 98% of the money in the world comes from is when banks create money. They basically do it out of thin air. So if you go to the bank and get a mortgage, that money doesn't really exist. The bank just punches buttons on a, on a computer and the money comes into existence. So here, here in New Zealand, we have something called the social credit party that has been campaigning for decades to end the ability of private banks to create money and to have our central bank, which is the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, to have them create money. Fortunately, our central bank is part of the government. It isn't private like the Federal Reserve is. Right. So they've done that before. In 1936, they created money that they issued directly into the economy to help New Zealand get out of the Great Depression. And right now, we had a lockdown here for COVID-19. And it basically crashed our economy. So the government is talking about borrowing all this money from our banks are mostly controlled by Australia, borrowing all this money from Australian banks to fund a the COVID-19 recovery. And we're putting a lot of pressure on the government that they should have the central bank spend the money directly into the economy because there's no need to borrow all of this money. And what's happened before is when this is allowed to happen, they, they say, oh, well, we have this enormous debt, so now we have to have austerity and we have to cut all our social spending. Hmm. Well, now that you've been there for 18 years, how have you processed what you've seen happen in America over these 18 years? Do you feel like you got out just in time? 
Are you alarmed at what you've seen? How do you feel about the trajectory of this country since you left? Well, it seems kind of crazy to me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did get out just in time. Yeah, it's really been an interesting time because this the whole social media thing started while I was here. You know, Facebook started in 2010. So I'm aware that there's a lot of information on the on the internet to help people understand what government is really doing. And I'm not sure if it's getting the kind of traction it needs in the in the right places. You know, as far as I can see, what passes for the left in the United States has totally abandoned the working class. And so what that means is that it's really easy for the right wing to organize these these phony populist campaigns that appeal to the working class. I mean, and that's basically what Hitler did in Germany, was that he basically shut down the left wing, put them in camps, whatever, and then delivered the message that he he was going to solve the problems that working people were struggling with. I guess it makes me really angry, you know, to see that these organizations that are supposedly, you know, liberal and progressive, really only catering to the interests of the middle class. So I guess that's mostly, you know, my reaction to what I see going on right now. Right. And on the subject of expatriating, what sort of advice would you have for someone who might be born and raised in America, frustrated with what they see around here, thinking about making a similar change, but maybe are just a little bit hesitant to pull the trigger because the unknown is scary. What sort of advice would you have for people in that mindset? You know, I think that it might be good to do it gradually, depending on what your economic situation is. You know, it's possible to get a, a short contract in many fields. In New Zealand, we work closely with something called Volunteers Abroad. So there's a number of voluntary agencies that you can work for that they provide housing and food and a small stipend. And that just, that would give you a chance to see what it's like living in the country to see if it would suit you. So that's what I would recommend. Great advice. And it is weird how even though we have all this access to information, the American bubble is quite tight. I'm sure part of it is geographical in nature, but we just don't know a lot about the alternatives outside of our own space, it seems. I read a statistic recently that only 40% of Americans have passports. Huh. That doesn't surprise me. And let's talk a little bit about current events, maybe, and some of the things you've covered on your blog, either written by you or other articles that you've shared. It seems like you two were a bit skeptical of the coronavirus situation, or at least the response to it and the snowball effect that response is having economically, right? Yeah. From what I see, there's a growing number of doctors that agree with me that 
historically, when we've been dealing with an epidemic, we have quarantined the sick and the vulnerable. And this is the first time in history that we've ever quarantined everyone. And I don't really understand why that happened. You know, I, I suspect that there are political reasons for that. And I don't think that they've been disclosed why that decision was made, that we should lock down like that. But it's been really devastating for New Zealand. We had very few cases here in New Zealand. The government made some initial mistakes. The Minister of Health told them to close the borders. And they allowed two major events to happen, one called WOMAD, which happens where I live in New Plymouth, you know, in which they had thousands of people coming from all over the world. And then there was a some kind of agricultural conference in Queenstown that they allowed to happen, and the prime minister did not follow his advice. And what happened is we started having a lot of cases. We started having community transmission, so they went immediately to lockdown, which is really, besides causing problems for the economy, it's caused a lot of unnecessary deaths for other conditions. Like they totally, during the lockdown, which essentially lasted two months, they had like 400 unnecessary deaths from cancer due to, or they predict 400 unnecessary deaths from cancer due to their failure to do cancer screening due to that two months. And I have a friend who's presently going through chemotherapy because he wasn't able to get appropriate screening for his cancer. Hmm. They've also, the frontline responders are saying there's been an increase in suicides in New Zealand. Because of the lockdown, we have no way of knowing, you know, how many preventable deaths that have happened because of heart attacks, you know, which can be treated now by putting a stint in or enzyme treatment. People just didn't go to the emergency room. They were really discouraged from doing so. I got an email from my GP, you know, just saying I would not be seen that I could, you know, put my name in and have a video appointment if I wanted. Hmm. So we only had 21 deaths from the coronavirus, and the, the number of deaths that are expected from potentially treatable conditions is really considerable. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was some research that you wrote about in your book that you did back during the AIDS epidemic, where you were looking into a cheap drug that had promising results called Tagamet, because that situation seems to have parallels to what we're seeing with COVID-19 and hydrochloroquine, potentially. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? And what was the deal with the research you were doing on that AIDS drug? Yeah, I did a an open study. It wasn't a double-blind study. I, you know, back in 1986, there was no treatment for AIDS other than AZT, which was extremely toxic and would shut down your bone marrow. So people were really terrified to take it. So I saw people in my practice for something that was called AIDS-related complex. And that's 
where they had symptoms of frequent colds and swollen lymph nodes and fungus growing on their fingers and fungus candida in their mouth. And so I put them on a trial of of tagamet and the people I saw actually improved with it. And I reported this to Project Inform, which was a group in San Francisco that was looking at alternative AIDS treatments. And they picked up on it and they reported it at one of the Montreal AIDS conference in the late 80s. And it's my understanding that ACT UP held a protest in front of Smith Klein to pressure them to do a study on tagamet, which I understand that they did hmm. in the AIDS-related complex. Interesting. And why was it that you thought that drug might work? Well, somebody had written a letter to one of the medical journals about tagamet targeting an H2 receptor. That's a drug at the time that was used in treating ulcers, and it's the H2 receptor on the T4 cell that's apparently affected by the HIV virus. And I paid somebody to do a literature search for me. I didn't have a computer at the time. So she, of all the articles that, of the studies that have been done using tagamet in a viral infection and I wrote to the company to find out, you know, what studies they had done. They gave me the runaround. But the last I heard, somebody in Thailand had done a study on it, and I'm not sure what the outcome was. Hmm. I think right now the triple viral therapy is so cheap, you know, everywhere, that I think the drug company has no incentive to do any more research on Tagamet because the patent has expired. Hmm. So there's no way they're going to fund the research. That seems to be exactly the issue with the COVID-19 thing, is there, there's there been a couple of drugs that seem to show promise. There are doctors who have treated them with these cheap drugs that also have had their patents expire, and they've seen great results. Yet I'm told that these situations are suppressed because, of course, the players involved would rather have an expensive vaccine. Yeah, that's true. There is a risk of using hydrochloroquine in people of Mediterranean or African-American origin. They need to be tested for a GPD-6 deficiency because otherwise it can cause something called hemolysis. So it's not a totally benign drug in certain people. So they need to be tested first before they take it. Fair, fair. And since your field is in psychiatry, how do you think the coronavirus thing has affected the mental state of people that are largely learning about this through their television? Well, it's, I think people are really terrifying. I think that the object of this whole COVID-19 thing was really to, to terrify them. I know here in New Zealand, like 80% people just go along with the lockdown, you know, they don't question it. They don't challenge it. The prime minister was wanting to extend it a bit longer. But we haven't had any any new cases in two weeks. And fortunately, there's been a lot of pressure from the 
the opposition party, which is our conservatives and also from a party that's in the coalition government right now. And so I think that we're going to go down to level one on Monday, which only keeps the borders closed and bans really large public events. But I think people are getting really fed up with it right now. I agree. I agree. And that's the conversation I've been having with guests is it seems like these protests, this giant movement that's happened, it is overdue because minorities definitely have been treated unfairly and the police have been militarized and there does need to be a public reaction from this. But the timeliness of it, it seems to almost serve the same purposes of people should be inside, get scared. There's a big angry mob outside your door. And as soon as businesses started to grumble about not being able to open, now they're putting boards up over their windows because they're afraid of looters. Uh, whether it's justified or not depends on, I guess, exactly where you are. In New York City, I understand that. But I've seen a lot of random businesses around me where there really isn't a threat of that. But that paranoia, it does grab you if you watch a little bit too much cable news. Yeah. Well, I, you know... I've seen a number of articles. I think Caitlin Johnstone, she's this Australian blogger. She was the first to point out that a lot of people breaking windows and stuff were undercover police. You know, they've been caught on camera doing that. Right. Yes. I've seen that too. Yeah. We had the same problem with the anti WTO protests in Seattle in 1999 informants would be breaking windows and the uniform police would just absolutely disappear, you know, and let them do it. Right. COINTELPRO mm -hmm. and really just so many examples in this long history of infiltrating peaceful and purposeful protests and demonstrations. There's no way you can control every individual anyway, but it's also near impossible to have a movement that's immune from agents getting into it. It's something we always have to factor. Right. Well, we, we have a few of them here in New Zealand, but where I live is in, we only have a population of 55,000. So I haven't noticed that problem locally, but it is a problem when I get involved with national organizations. You have to be very careful mm -hmm. about what you say online. I also liked this section as we're kind of getting to the end of the road here. Let's talk solutions because you have this section, the basics of sustainability organizing. You say sustainability related work can be broken down into concrete achievable steps, which also lends to its appeal. In the transition towns movement, organizers have found it easiest to begin with food, water and energy security, in part because they are the most critical to human survival. However, the bioregional economic networks established as a first step in addressing food, water, and energy security can be used to prepare for breakdowns in other systems. For 99.9% .9 of human existence, people have relied on a bioregional economic model in which they source food and other life essentials from within a 100-mile radius, and it's only in the last 70 years that we've become totally dependent on national and multinational corporations to meet these same needs. The mere process of recreating these bioregional networks is very helpful in learning to shift our thinking away from our total dependence on corporate products and services. 
And that is just very well said. And I really agree. That should be our top priority. I'm hearing that conversation more and more. It sucks that this coronavirus situation put us into a position where there's potential for major meat shortages in this country. We haven't seen them yet, but we're constantly being warned now. The whispers are out there. And had we established this network that you described in this book years ago, we'd be a lot more secure today. So I think that's really well said. Is there anything more you would say about sustainability organizing that you've learned over the years or advice for people who are thinking about this now, but maybe have yet to act? Well, I think what the one really exciting thing that's been happening in the United States since COVID-19 is the establishment of mutual aid networks. Hmm. And I would encourage people to find, you know, just put in their search engine, you know, mutual aid networks and get involved. Because it, it looks to me that the current system is very chaotic right now. And we're at kind of a tipping point. And I think that what a mutual aid network does is people look after each other in terms of food and shopping and medications and supporting them with rent strikes. But I think, you know, the stronger we can make the mutual aid networks, the better the chances will be that we can rebuild something when this, I think this is a house of cards now, to be honest. When this house of cards collapse, if we have strong mutual aid networks, then we'll be able to rebuild something new. Very well said. They use that problem reaction solution against us so often that I think it's time that we employ that same situation because we definitely have seen this crisis happen around us and how vulnerable we are. And I hope that people do get motivated to build their own solutions going forward so that they're less susceptible to the big machine in the future. Well, I I think the U.S. economy was going down before the COVID-19 started, you know, <laughs> yeah, from yes. everything, yeah, that it was going down and that, you know, to look at this from a, you know, from a real panoramic perspective, I think what's happening right now is just a distraction. The rats are leaving the ship and they're trying to take all their loot with them, you know. I mean, <laughs> that's basically what I see happening. And so we really need to really focus on rebuilding right now. Yes, I am right there with you. And is there anything to say about the psychology of those who just don't want to believe the system is this corrupt or that there are lies and operations being run on us? Do you have any advice on how to reach them more effectively from a psychological perspective? Because a lot of us are losing our relationships with friends and family because we just can't get them to see things the way we see them. Well, I think, you know, I've been involved in some climate change work as well. So it's, you know, you have to pretend you're talking to a climate denier. So when you talk to a climate denier, you just listen. You just listen to them and you find out what they are concerned about. If you let people talk long enough, you can find out what they are concerned about. And I think that's how you reach out to them. Wow, that is very wise. I like that. Great advice. Man, this has been a lot of fun. You're very insightful. I'm glad we could highlight your story. I think people will find it full of the sort of stuff we tend to talk about a lot around here. And I'm sorry that the big machine has been so rough on you. Before we go, do remind people about your work that they can support. 
or where they could follow up on this or keep tabs on the stuff that you got going on, your writing and your sharing, that kind of stuff? So probably best my website, www.stuartgenebramhall.com is the best way to keep up. Very cool. And of course, you got the books out there. Anything else in the works? I'm pretty much a full-time activist right now. I don't have time to write any books. <laughs> Dedicated to the cause. I like it. Awesome. Well, thanks again. You are a true champion of the people. Do take care. Okay, you too. Bye. All right, all right, all right. How about it? I definitely left this interview with good feelings. Big thanks to Dr. Bramhall for taking the time. This was an interview that manifested in a fairly weird way, and I was far less sure of what we would get than I usually am, because I haven't heard her give that many interviews. She's got some older interviews posted on her website, but the links are mostly defunct or broken, and they're at least five or six years old anyway. But it started, as I mentioned, because I wanted to talk to someone who had investigated, at least to some degree, that there's a deeper story to the George Floyd situation. Is this some wag-the-dog style media manipulation? You know, not that it didn't happen, but is there something else going on that we're not going to be told? And you know me, I'm always going to be looking for some counter-narrative, and there's always at least one you can find. And I'll admit that some are strong and some are pretty flimsy. But I'm going to be looking for that. That's kind of what this show is about. And one of my big problems in this case is that many of the investigators or social commentators that are looking for a deeper angle to the George Floyd situation are doing it in a somewhat slimy tone. There's a hint of, well, a police officer wouldn't just kill someone like that. There's got to be more to it. He was a bad guy. He was on drugs. He was having a heart attack. He did porn. You know, this sort of stuff. As if any of that would even come close to justifying what it looks like happened on that tape. So I see a lot of gross motivations for looking at alternative narratives in this case that do not jive with my own motivations. And I wanted to be very careful to select the right person if we we're going to go into that. And the more I got into Dr. Bramhall's life and writings, the more I found that I thought would make a useful show. Lifelong activist fighting for disenfranchised communities, lending her own expertise to help people who typically wouldn't have access to that, and thus getting a serious window into how those communities are manipulated, the challenges they face. She was met with systematic harassment for going out of her lane and helping these people. She was ultimately driven to expatriate. I thought that was a very useful layer right now because I am hearing that conversation being had more and more. Also, she's written extensively about the solution being community building, decentralization, and sustainability through a bio-regional economic model. So I found a lot there to round out a show that would be somewhat topical, but also peppered with insights about true systematic injustice that might not be on our radar typically. I hope you enjoyed it and feel compelled to reach out to her. She seems like someone who's been put through the ringer, didn't let it break her, and also hasn't been appreciated like I think she should. I've got a long list of potential guests, and I love getting those big names and all that, 
But in between, I also like highlighting the story of someone who did the right thing and faced the system's wrath for it and never really got a time in the spotlight. As small as ours is, it's nice to put her in it. So check out her blog if you liked it. I would like her to know that people were listening today, if we can. It was nice to hear her talking about being liberal in New Zealand versus the United States as well. Not having to sign off on every bullet point. Not having to toe the party line. Being able to have different opinions on subject A, B, and C. And not being shunned by other liberals. Again, that's the woke virus, the circular firing squad. It's why many people who don't consider themselves conservative feel very left out in the cold. So that was very refreshing for me. But as I got into a lot of these other aspects of what I could talk to her about, a deeper analysis of the George Floyd situation specifically felt a bit less important. And most of that did come out in the Plus show, partly because that's just the way it happened, partly because it's a bit too hot of a topic to just be floating around out there, and partly because I think it's something that you should bring up only after you've talked about the systematic traps laid for low-income people, dark-skinned people, whatever you want to say. That stuff should be highlighted first before you talk about how that energy that's been there for a long time, that's very justified, how it's been used in this situation. As always, if you want to hear twice as much THC, get a Plus membership and hear the second hour of all of the shows I do. In today's, we talked about little stories like meatpacking factories using prison labor in the coronavirus wake, more techniques that the system uses to trap low-income families in poverty, New Zealand's anti-vax activism, of course, a deeper look at that George Floyd situation, and some of the work that she's done investigating fluoride, MAP, and the menopause industry, interesting enough. So a lot of great stuff packed in there. But I also wanted to mention this. We've got this defund the police movement going on. From a tactical perspective, it's the perfect phrase because it's so vague. It means different things to different people. And it causes more division because everyone's got their opinion on what it means. You can't even talk about something if people aren't on the same page about its meaning. Like instead, if you said demilitarize the police or re-communicatize the police, bring them back into the community, who would argue with that? But it's another think tank slogan aimed at creating a deeper divide. Obviously, I have massive problems with the police. I've been told to get out of the car, get on my knees, while several police had their guns drawn at me and my friends. One of us was crying, not me. <laughs> we did nothing wrong at all. They made a bet that they could pull over five teenagers at midnight and find someone drunk or find a little weed or just find something. But... When they went for it, they realized we were all sober and we had nothing on us and we were just driving from one house to another. So when it was all said and done, they just go, oh, well, you match the description of someone who robbed a place. No apology, no anything. 
So I'm no stranger to how aggressive and arrogant police can be regardless of skin color, just because I've always presented myself as kind of a counterculture person, whether it's punk rock bumper stickers when I was 16 or the higher side chats rap I have now, I am positioned in a way in which police look at me with a skeptical eye. Granted, that's a choice. I can't change my skin color, but I could definitely wear polos and get a Zach Morris haircut if I wanted to, but whatever. The point is that now I'm starting to hear that in retaliation to being overworked and underappreciated in all these protests, some police organizations are trying to put together a mass strike, which is technically illegal, I understand. The police are not allowed to strike. But they're working around that by calling it the blue flu. Wink, wink, a mass sick out on July 4th. I hear something like that and I start to get concerned with just how close we are to the purge. A day or a period of time for announced lawlessness? Can the masses in our current state actually fight that temptation enough for love to override fear? I'm not so sure. Anyway, I liked a lot of what our guest said today. We talked about a lot of important stuff without getting too political. And we tried to talk about a lot of this without a the sky is falling kind of framing. So I don't want to do that now. But be awake. Be ready. And I hope you had a good time. In higher side news, we got a joint session coming up on the 25th, 7 p.m. Pacific. I'd love to hear about what you're seeing out there. Maybe it'll be like the last joint session where current events barely came up at all. Maybe everyone's fatigued about that, would rather talk about Bigfoot and the Mothman. Who knows? But we got one more THC episode for the month, and I think you are going to love it. I'm very psyched about it. Very much looking forward to sharing it with you guys. And before I go, I also got an email from someone who said they bought a few items off the website for her boyfriend, which orders are very backed up right now, by the way. Sorry about that. I am just one client of many for this big company now. They do print on a lot of great stuff, so we have way more options than we ever had. But because of this virus thing and everything going on, they're just very backed up. But all that stuff's coming, I promise. But anyway, she said that they've been listeners for a long time. Their nine-year anniversary is coming up, and she got him some merch for it. And so I'm happy. I'm sure he will be happy. And a very happy anniversary to OTM from me and On That Mess Girl. Thanks for the support and for sticking with me for so long. I hope THC remains part of that glue that keeps you together for the long haul. And with that, stay safe out there, guys. Don't get swept up in any of the various currents rushing through the world right now. And take the advice of many of our guests recently and focus on building the world we want to see rather than just standing around watching the old one crumble. Love you guys. I've done my part. Your move, systematic scale tippers, outrage injectors, and crowd controllers. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppets.
Time. 